This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the New Books in African American Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jared Pichetti, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with the eminent historian of plantation slavery and society in the 17th and 18th century Caribbean, Professor Trevor Bernard, to discuss his groundbreaking new book, Jamaica in the Age of Revolutions, published in 2020 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Professor Bernard is the Wilberforce Professor of Slavery and Emancipation at the University of Hull and the director of the Wilberforce Institute, a position he assumed in January 2020. Professor Bernard is the author of countless books, the most notable including Mastery, Tyranny, and Desire, Thomas Thistlewood and His Slaves in the Anglo-Jamaican World, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2004, Planters, Merchants, and Slaves, Plantation Societies in British America, 1650 to 1820, published in 2015 by the University of Pennsylvania Press, and co-edited with John Garrigus, The Plantation Machine, Atlantic Capitalism and French Saint-Domingue in British Jamaica, published in 2016 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Between the start of the Seven Years' War in 1756 and the onset of the French Revolution in 1789, Jamaica was the richest and most important colony in British America. White Jamaican slave owners presided over a highly productive economic system, a precursor to the modern factory and its management of labor, its harvesting of resources, and its scale of capital investment and output. Planters, supported by a dynamic merchant class in Kingston, created a plantation system in which short-term profit maximization was the main aim. Their slave system worked because the planters who ran it were extremely powerful. In Jamaica in the Age of Revolution, Trevor Bernard analyzes the men and women who gained so much from the labor of enslaved people in Jamaica, to expose the ways in which power was wielded in a period when the powerful were unconstrained by custom, law, or for the most part, public approbation or disapproval. Bernard finds that the unremitting war by the powerful against the poor and powerless, evident in the day-to-day struggle slaves had with masters, is a crucial context for grasping what enslaved people had to endure. Examining such events as Tacky's Rebellion of 1760, the largest slave revolt in the Caribbean before the Haitian Revolution, the Somerset decision of 1772, and the murder case of the Zong in 1783 in in an Atlantic context. Bernard reveals Jamaica to be a brutally effective and exploitative society that was highly adaptable to new economic and political circumstances, even when placed under great stress as during the American Revolution. 
Jamaica in the Age of Revolution demonstrates the importance of Jamaican planters and merchants to British imperial thinking at a time when slavery was unchallenged. Welcome to the show, Professor Bernard, and thank you so much for carving out the time to speak with me about your impressive new study of mid to late 18th century Jamaica. Uh, thank you very much, Gerard. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Your new book is a fascinating and brilliantly argued piece. And in the introduction, you note that Jamaica in the Age of Revolutions is the culmination of some 30 years of archival research in the rich archives of Jamaica. Before we dig into the specifics of the book, I was hoping that you could please reflect on these 30 years of familiarizing yourself with these records, how it began, how your ideas and interpretations of slavery and plantation societies in Jamaica and elsewhere in the Caribbean have evolved, and how your work has influenced a generation of scholars to exhaustively study the evolution of slavery and slaveholding across time and space in the 17th and 18th century Caribbean. Well, thank you. Well, I might leave it to you to, to, or to others to describe how my work has influenced uh, scholarship, although perhaps I'll give a few hints in, in, in this. Um, I arrived in Jamaica in 1987 to take up a post at the University of the West Indies um, as a 25-year-old uh, lecturer, so I was quite young and naive. Um, but I was very, having worked at that stage on Maryland, uh, on the great planters of Maryland, uh, and I was interested in going to Jamaica, not only because it was a place, an interesting place and a place to have a job, but also because I was interested uh, in looking at uh, the sorts of things that I've been looking at at the Chesapeake, uh, which would be very much based on the social history of the Chesapeake uh, under great people like Lois Green Carr, uh, Lorena Walsh, uh, people like that in the in, in the eighteen in the eighteenth century, uh, working in the late twentieth century. Uh, so much of what I was interested in doing was in replicating for the Chip Caribbean, for Jamaica, the types of social history I was doing had found out for the Chesapeake. And what I discovered uh, was something which is very important and rare for a historian, which was not an untouched, certainly a lot of scholars had looked at it, but a an archive uh, which for people who were interested in the developing field of Atlantic history, who were interested in socioeconomic history, uh, who'd been interested in the sorts of things that the Chesapeake School of the 1970s and 1980s had been doing, was pretty much untouched terrain. So I was very interested in, and spent a lot of time uh, in the Jamaican archives, not only when I lived in Jamaica, but after I'd moved to New Zealand in 1990, uh, in looking at the at looking at looking the, the vital records of Jamaica. So I, I approached Jamaican history very much as a as a social historian. And I think that that would be one of the impacts of my work and one of the things that I want to be able to show in this particular book uh, is the richness of the archival sources, which are much richer, I think, than people uh, sometimes think, uh, even though they're not entirely, um, they are quite opaque and you can't get everything from them. But there's a lot of information that you can get from traditional social history, uh, social history records, which enables you to recreate what Jamaica was like. Uh, and so much of my work, certainly in the first 10 years or so of writing on Jamaica, and perhaps really up until my work on Thomas Thistlewood, was very much in, in recreating the social economic contours of Jamaica. And this book, which is a collection of essays, which I can perhaps come to the, explain why this uh, book came about soon. Uh, but this book of essays on various aspects of Jamaica takes a lot of that social history perspective 
What has happened in the last 20 years has been uh, general historiographical moves, uh, one towards cultural history to representation. I guess my work predates that in some ways. My my work is very much uh, based on the empirical evidence uh, that's so important to social historians, but it is dealing with the sorts of issues that a generation of historians have been interested in cultural history have have wanted, have been interested in doing. And secondly, I've my initial aim, which was started off as being rather quixotic, uh, but has now turned to be something which is very normative, which is to place Jamaica less in a Caribbean or a Jamaican context, uh, which was what people in the 1970s and 1980s did, but to place Jamaica in an Atlantic, uh, particularly in a North American context, uh, less, I guess, less see, seeing Jamaica less as the most important Caribbean colony uh, and more as the 14th uh, American colony uh, started to be important. And recently, uh, to see, see Jamaica uh, within two particular contexts, but within the context of the age of revolution, which is in nowadays the way that people tend to think of, of, of the years between 1760 and 1830, uh, rather than thinking about it as the age of the, of the birth of the American Republic. It's, it's a wider scope now, uh, and also to see Jamaica uh, within the context, like not most of North America, uh, both in terms of continental history and also Atlantic history, within the context of imperial history. So if there are two things I think that I have, three things that I think that I have done in terms of my overall work in Jamaica, and hopefully in this book as well, uh, one is, the first is to introduce students and scholars uh, to the richness of the Jamaican archives and to show that there's a lot about Jamaica that we can discover, which tells us a bit, uh, a great deal about this particularly important 18th century British American colony. The secondly is to help lead the way uh, in placing Jamaica within an Atlantic context. And that's been something which is very much a notable feature of recent scholarship. Uh, it's interesting, for example, then the leading journal in the field, leading journals in the field, uh, the William and Mary Quarterly, there have been more articles published uh, on Jamaica in the last 10 years uh, than there has been on any other uh, British American colony, which is an extraordinary thing uh, for anyone starting off and doing Jamaican history, uh, as I did back in the 19, late 1980s. Uh, and the third thing, I guess, is to, is to think of Jamaica as especially important uh, in terms of the age of revolution, and to try and make the 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 the, the, the argument, which I had Andrew Shaughnessy, a very good friend of mine, and someone who I write with, uh, has put forward uh, in in his great book on on a divided empire in two thousand, uh, to to stress the idea that the that to understand the American Revolution, we have to understand those places which did not join the revolution, such as Jamaica, as much as those colonies like Virginia or Massachusetts or New York which did join in the American Revolution, which means that I add, I guess, to a literature now, growing literature, uh, sometimes described as vast early America, but certainly a sort of globalised, a, a, a few of the America, of early Americans in a much more globalised imperial uh, and, and Atlantic context, uh, which sees Jamaica very much as an important part, uh, not just of the Caribbean, uh, but of a wider Atlantic and imperial world. I found myself really uh, 
intrigued but also impressed by the introduction and in a lot of ways um, speaking back to several of the things that you just mentioned now in the ways in which Jamaica overwhelmingly has been given short shrift in the historiography of the American Revolution although as you mentioned it's become increasingly uh, a subject of historical investigation albeit uh, the the post-ameliorationist period, I believe, has been the primary focus of many scholars' works recently. But with that being said, it was just such an interesting introduction in that versus the standard anecdote or vignette, followed by placing this event in its historical or historiographic context, um, you chose to speak back to very rich and nuanced historiography. And I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about what compelled you to write and organize the introduction of Jamaica in the Age of Revolutions in the way that you did it being a historiographic synthesis, but also um, some of the cautionary tales that you believe are with us now in the 21st century as we continue to investigate these very violent yet um, very important histories of slavery in the modern Atlantic world? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. I think that the first one I'd say just very quickly is that it comes from a particular way that this book was conceptualized. Uh, this book was concept, conceptualized Initially, I, I thought of it as just a way of, of um, publishing uh, a large number of articles that I had already written on, on Jamaica um, and putting them in, a, in, in, a, in, in book format, which would be convenient for readers. But publishing has moved on. Uh, and so instead of being a collection of greatest hits, um, such as they might be, uh, it, became, it became a collection of articles that I hadn't published uh, and increasingly, it, it became conceptualized around articles uh, that that dealt with various aspects of Jamaica in what I'm calling the Age of Revolution, particularly in the period of the American Revolution. And I thought, and I thought, well, how does how do I get have have how do I have these hang together? And it seemed to me that it was important, uh, given that these were essays which were discrete rather than necessarily following a. Um, a particular theme, but I had to have an introduction which placed my work uh, within a lot larger context. And the more I thought about it, I thought that it was important um, both to talk about where I came from in terms of looking at Jamaican history. And I guess I have two unusual features in that way. Firstly is that uh, I'm not Jamaican, uh, nor am I American, so I don't uh, don't have a particular investment in uh, Jamaican history or contemporary Jamaica, and certainly have no investment in contemporary America or in American history. I mean, I, the interest that anybody as a world citizen has, um, but how 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 these places choose their presidents and how they choose their their prime ministers and how they they operate. Um, is not really my concern. I'm very interested in it in terms of the 18th century. So I, I think it's important to recognise that I look at these places from outside of the perspective of someone who is a local. Uh, I look at it very much uh, as as a foreigner, in the same way as say, an American might look at the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or, or, or ancient Rome. Um, and secondly, I wanted to show, I guess, uh, a generational thing that, that's... Having lived, having started off as a social historian, uh, and very much operating within the ideas of what used to be called the new social history of the nineteen seventies and eighties, uh, that this work has gone along with with the uh, has gone along and reacted to the variety of forms of scholarship that have emerged since then. And I guess one of the most important ones of that is that Jamaica is, at least for the historians of the Atlantic world, 
an increasingly important place. Uh, it's important not only because it is uh, a, a vitally important colony in terms of the wealth it produced, but also because it creates a model of society, uh, what I call a failed settler society in 1994, uh, which separates itself out from the types of societies in North America which are developing in, in this way. And one of the things I wanted to do uh, was to say, to talk about how the scholarship that is emerging is very much connected with this Atlantic scholarship which talks to a wider hemispheric imperial British world. So I want to, want to look at Jamaica using the, the techniques of social history, a local place a, 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 with persistent, with with with. With, with people who don't move far away from Jamaica, but Jamaica also within a wider world. And I thought that looking at the American Revolution was important in this way, because one of the things, one of the questions that uh, struck me, and I guess one of the things I'd like to have coming, I mean, if people have reading from this particular book, is that I hope that they look at some old questions in new ways. And one of the old questions I hope that people would look at in a new way is that instead of asking why did Jamaica not join the American Revolution, they might ask is why did the 13 colonies not follow Jamaica in being loyal and staying part of a British empire? Because I think that's really the major question. The default question is not why uh, Jamaica uh, stayed loyal. It's why other colonies felt sufficiently agitated to break away. And I think that you can only understand really uh, why the 13 colonies did what, it did, did what they did if you can, if, if you appreciate why Jamaica did what it did, or at least why the white planters and merchants of Jamaica did what they did, which was to stay very much within a British empire, which they felt angry about at times, which they also, they also felt sustained, sustained them. So hopefully that gives you some idea, I guess, of why I wrote the introduction in order to, to give structure um, to a series of disparate articles, which I hope taken all together provides a an interesting portrait of Jamaica at a, at a very vital time within Atlantic uh, and indeed within American history. I think uh, going back to the question that you just raised, which is is very prov provocative and um, it, you know expertly examined across the book um, of why Jamaicans stayed loyal to the British. It, I, I'm wondering if you could offer perhaps a. Um, an overview or an answer to that question, because I think that th that question animates in some ways every chapter of the book in some way, um, you know, with the, the period between the end of the Seven Years' War and the beginnings of the American Revolution really being uh, the period in which you seem to have investigated most thoroughly in the book. And so I was, you know, in a lot of ways, I think another way of, of, of framing the question could be, how did the age of revolutions reshape plantation politics, not only in the British Amer in the British Americas and in the nascent United States of America, but also in the British Empire and places like Jamaica? Well, there are two very big questions which, are, which animate the whole of the, of the book. Um, what, I would, what I would say about it is that it's, um, the, the two questions are, why did Jamaica not join with the 13 colonies, not become the 14th colony uh, to, be, to break free uh, of British rule, and the second one is what? Why did it matter? What were the implications of this? Um, the first one is a variety of reasons which I address in here, uh, but but one of the one of the larger contexts that I would like readers to think about is that the customary 
interpretation of what happened after the Seven Years' War in North America is that the American, the, the British in the 1760s were unable to cope with the pressures of a new and, and, and expanded empire with, prop, with issues to, in, in the continental west of America, with, with issues to do with India, uh, and most of all issues to do with the 13 colonies. In other words, it's a British empire which seems in strife and a, unable to operate. It looks different from Jamaica. The period between 1763 and 1776 is a period uh, of... For white planters, the people who ran the place, uh, it was a period of extreme wealth, extreme prosperity, where Jamaicans felt very comfortable within a British empire. The types of things that caused revolt in America were of no concern or little concern in Jamaica, such as uh, such as the, the a tax burden or the various the various actions uh, that Britons had made against against. Um, uh, North Americans. And so Jamaicans operated in a British empire that they thought was very good. And that British empire was one which was predicated much more on, on listening to people from Jamaica who had a much bigger presence in London than any North American did than it did on listening to Virginians or South Carolinians, let alone those rascals in Boston uh, who Britons thought uh, would everybody would everybody in North America wouldn't support. And they thought so because they'd been listening to Jamaicans, and Jamaicans uh, wanted the British were fully in support of such things as the coercive acts, etc. So that's one thing that I want to say is that from the from a Jamaican perspective, the British Empire worked well, uh, that loyalty was was likely. But there are two there are other factors as well. The second one is that uh, the second one is that that. Jamaica was because of its demographic nature, the demographic nature of things in Jamaica, which I've spent a lot of time working on, was an immigrant nation. It was not only that the great, great majority of the population who were Africans came from West Africa, those people who were planters and merchants tended to be migrants from Britain uh, and, and, and specifically from England. So they had an instinctive loyalty to the places from which they came. Moreover, the demography of Jamaica meant that it was a not only a hugely profitable place, but it was as an island located in the Caribbean in, in between other European empires, notably France and Spain, uh, particularly Saint-Domingue and Cuba to, the, to its north, uh, was a place which was insecure externally and even more so was insecure internally. Uh, I, I date the American Revolution as starting in 1760 with Tacky's Revolt, the largest enslaved revolt uh, in in the Caribbean uh, and certainly in British America uh, before the Haitian Revolution. Um, and I think that it continues right up until 1788, uh, which is the start of abolition. That's my period for the American Revolution, a very Jamaican-centric one. Um and, and if you look at it, in, 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 in one reason was is that the British that the that Jamaica uh, needed British support, and it needed it in two ways. One because it knew that it had lots of rebellious enslaved people who they knew and had experience uh, would take revenge about them if against against whites if they possibly could within an extremely exploitative enslaved system. Uh, and secondly, unlike North America, which from the 1740s had experienced uh, had achieved natural demographic increase among its enslaved population, which means it didn't need the Atlantic slave trade, Jamaican slavery was so brutal 
that enslaved people died in such large numbers that natural increase was never possible, meaning it was always very dependent on a slave on, on slave trade. So Jamaica, even if it had wanted to join America, and it didn't, uh, would have found it impossible to do so. Um, the second question, very briefly, what were the what's the consequences of it? Well, I, firstly, I think that uh, one of the things which has always surprised me is that North Americans uh, did not try and get Jamaica to join the American Revolution. If you wanted to destroy a European army, given the way that disease worked, you sent them to the Caribbean. Um, but North America didn't want to do that. And the, and the leaders of the Continental Congress made no attempt to include Jamaica or other West Indian colonies in rebellion, which says that, that, that by the 1760s and 70s, uh, North Americans were seeing a difference uh, in their, their societies from that of Jamaica. The consequences of the American Revolution, I think, were very dramatic. And the mo- most important one, and we perhaps we could talk about later on, was that it split uh, the slave empire of Britain in two. Uh, American history would have looked very different uh, if it had stayed within an empire in which the majority of enslaved people uh, and the greatest amount of wealth from slavery was in the West, West Indies, uh, and it would have seemed quite different as well. Uh, is that if the if uh, if if, if the, the, the many colonies of the Caribbean um, had been added to the the plantation societies of America, South Carolina would not have seen it seemed exceptional. It would have seemed quite typical. So for later American history, uh, the fact that Jamaica did not join in with the American revolutionaries and the same with other West Indian islands as well meant a significant difference uh, in how American history operated because of dividing the slave slave empire. And for Britain, of course, it meant uh, that when Jamaica and other West Indian islands, West Indian colonies were left in the American, were left in the British Empire, after the end, after the after the after the American Revolution, all of a sudden the number of white Protestants, particularly white Protestant slaveholders, were far less uh, than they had been before. So it meant that that Britain, whatever whatever else, whatever else might have happened in terms of intellectually, was much more likely to be able to achieve abolition if it did so. Uh, given that the plantation societies of America had been divided in two, into a West Indian and a North American one, than before. So I think that the American Revolution therefore had a very great geopolitical effect uh, on both America uh, and on Britain, in terms of the British Empire, in terms of the infant United States of America, uh, that is worth investigating. Um, the final thing that I would say about it is why it matters is that if we are to include Jamaica as, as part of America, which I think it, it, it should be, that we should think of Jamaica as, as being as important as Virginia and Massachusetts, and Massachusetts and Virginia being as important as Jamaica, then we have to take into account the particular nature of the enslaved society that was created in Jamaica. And that changes our position of what we, our view of what we think of slavery, what we think of plantation societies, what we think of the British Empire uh, in, in, in this particular period. I must say, one of the things which I find as a historian of Jamaica really puzzling at the moment uh, is a particular aspect of the 1619 project, uh, which suggests that 
the American one reason why Americans broke away from Britain uh, to start the American Revolution is that they feared that Britain was being too lenient on enslaved on on, on enslaved people, that it was it was turning into an abolitionist nation, etc. That seems very strange if you look at it from Jamaica, uh, because Britain was the leading slave trader in the world. Sent fifteen thousand captive Africans a year to Jamaica in the years just before the age of revolution. It supported slavery and the most brutal form of slavery in Jamaica uh, with a maximum amount of authority and force. Uh, and the and and the, and the ideas that somehow or other the British Empire was a gentler place when it came to slavery uh, certainly seems for a historian of Jamaica uh, to be a quite bizarre interpretation. Um, and so one of the reasons why I think Jamaica, and I'll, I'll finish now, I've been talking for quite a long time about this, but one of the, thing, one of the reasons I think uh, that we need to look at Jamaica, if you are looking at, at, at African-American history uh, in the United States, is that to, once you include Jamaican history uh, as part of American history, you have a quite different view of, one, of what slavery is, and secondly, of what slavery was like uh, during the British period. One of the things I hope readers would come away from uh, this reading this book is just a realisation of just how terrible slavery was uh, in the middle of the 18th century uh, and that his slavery has a history um, and that it, it's different in the 19th century than it was in the 17th century uh, and it's different in the 18th century and in the 18th century uh, it was very much focused around sugar plantations in places like Jamaica uh, and that, that, that alters how we think of colonial early America. I couldn't agree more with your your remarks just a moment ago um, that incorporating Jamaica into the history of the Americas in the 18th century, particularly during the age of revolutions, um, it it certainly complicates um, the motives or motivations of the um, not only the North American colonists but also uh, you know the the loyalties of West Indian planters in places like Jamaica to the crown. And it, it makes more, I think it uh, contextualizes the, the reasons why the West Indian planters certainly would have um, stayed loyal to the crown uh, during this conflict. Uh, and I think it's it seems so obvious now, given the, the spate of historiography that's been published over the, the past two, two or three decades, I would say. But um, in terms of the, you know, the, the simple fact that Jamaican Jamaicans and West Indian planters more broadly received such favorable treatment from the crown because it was Jamaica was the crown jewel of the British Empire throughout the 18th century. It was its wealthiest colony and it was, you know, considered to be the most strategic in terms of trade and uh, the preservation of of British rule there. And so it's it's interesting to when you include a, a Caribbean uh, you know, oriented focus of the American Revolution, how drastically that shapes our um, the takeaways that we have from that very pivotal moment in uh, modern history. But one of the, the questions I had um, in that regard, too, and, you know, the, the road to revolution that you uh, so eloquently and thoroughly explore in the beginning chapters of the book uh, that eventually led to the revolution itself was um, the possibilities that were created in the mid 18th century in terms of Jamaican society and its economy. And so in the first three chapters, you discussed Jamaican planters in the broader planter culture that they constructed 
that they perfected and sustained over the course of the mid to late 18th century through a, a variety of measures, including grotesque violence and spectacles of terror, as well as the continued reliance on the importation of captain, captive Africans to sustain their labor needs, but also the, the importation of provisions to nourish these women and men's overworked bodies, but also the perfection of scientific management practices that carefully calibrated capital investments, the management of labor, and this obsession with short-term profits and the maximization of profits. And I was hoping that you could bring us into the world of uh, 1750s and 1760s Jamaica for our listeners so that way they have a better understanding of how Jamaica was able to construct such a productive yet such violent uh, society during this period. Well, that's a great question. I'll try and be brief, briefer than I have been so far in my my questions, because I think that is the key uh, to try understanding Jamaica. I think that Jamaica... uh, and I'll try and be, I'll, I'll use some words and I'll, I'll justify them. And Jamaica creates a successful society, successful only for a small proportion of the population and successful only in a couple of ways. And it's successful only really in terms of creating vast amounts of wealth for fortunate possessors. Uh, so that the richest people in Jamaica, and there were a lot of rich people in Jamaica among this white population, uh, earned huge amounts of money by any, any, any comparison with, with America. The richest people in Jamaica were of a, of a different level of wealth, 10 times as wealthy uh, as, the, as the richest people in South Carolina, as wealthy as the richest aristocrats in Britain. And they do so through a particularly brutal but very efficient and very modern, I emphasize that word as well, a very modern form of slave management which is based very much on a, on a couple of things. The first one was of working and slave people as hard as they could and not caring very much, if at all, uh, about the welfare living standards of enslaved people. Jamaicans, much more than North Americans, thought of enslaved people uh, as without reference to them being humans. They, 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 they equated them close to, to animals in all sorts of ways. Um, and you can see that in how they, 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 they listed enslaved people in lists of um, where they, they, they listed human beings along with horses and mules side by side in their, in, in, in their, in their documents. Um, and they had, they had so little concern for enslaved people people because the imperative was to get as rich as one could as quickly as one could knowing that the the life expectancies of people in the Caribbean particularly white people were very low with limited concern about creating uh, lasting social institutions uh, but of creating a particular type of society the society they had therefore and from the 1750s and 1760s was one with a small number of extremely rich white people uh, lording it over a large number of brutalized black people without much concern for their welfare just to get as much money as they could. And I think in that case, I uh, think that some of the some of the, the events, and I, I look at these, the events I look in, in terms of Jamaican history, which I think is also part of American history, is important. The Stackage Revolt in 1760, which was a great slave rebellion, taught Jamaicans 
what we would consider to be exactly the wrong lesson, which the lesson being that if you're as brutal as you possibly can and you make sure that enslaved people are kept down at all times, then you can stop slave rebellion, particularly if you have the support of a repressive state. It was also also that we also important was that with with a with a flourishing in slave trade, uh, you didn't have to worry about the demographic consequences of your brutal system. Uh, and that meant that, therefore, you were able to create a society um, which had a very low opinion of, of people, where commodification of everything was very possible was, was, was possible and desirable, where people lived almost always for the short term. I spent one chapter dealing with the great historian, uh, the great racist historian, Edward Long, who bemoans Jamaica in particular for their short-termism. But that short-termism made a lot of sense. And if we want to com- compare it uh, with modern life, we can think of an awful lot of, I guess I guess you might say, just-in-time types of management strategies or the types of, of, of strategies we see in financial institutions where the short-term is valued very much over the long-term uh, and the welfare of individuals uh, is, 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 is not considered very important very important. The result was a, a two-tiered society, which would be one society, the, the small white society where people live very well, ate huge amounts, drank huge amounts, fornicated like crazy, lived lived lives of, of, of gay abandon and hedonism, presiding over one of the worst treated populations in human history. So it's a, so it's a society of great contrasts. And people found it very disturbing, even more so the twin island of, of Saint-Domingue. People found these places very disturbing. These, this seemed to be what the consequences of modern life was, was, was going to be. If money was the object of all things and exploitation was, was everything. I quote Sarah Gaze, a historian I greatly admire, um, to, to talk about the planters as being very much like the, the worst type of English or Scottish uh, enclosing landlords in the 18th century. These were entrepreneurially minded uh, but brutal and exploitative capitalists uh, who presided over a brutalised population. Uh, And in that way, it's a very unedifying place. I think one of the uh, most poignant examples that you include to demonstrate this short-term obsession with profits uh, was the example that you give of the jobbing gangs um, and the um, the roles that they and the enslaved persons that they owned and oversaw um, in terms of digging um, deep holes for sugar. I think that was a very clear uh, example of this obsession of people at the lower levels of society aspiring to be wealthier. And in the short term, they would stop at nothing, even if that meant completely decimating uh, you know, a, a gang or group of enslaved laborers who would be sent to early graves as a result of this backbreaking labor, malnourishment and disease and other factors. But um, the that example for me, it, it's, it stands out from the book um, in, in the ways in which during this period, which is a, to me, the, one of the most fascinating things about this book, I would say, is that it, it very much takes Ira Berlin's uh, imperative that we as scholars of slavery study the evolution of slave slavery over time and over space. And, and in a lot of ways to it, it 
utilizes his um, formulation of generations to look at uh, specific developments within societies or slave societies at very particular times. And so this this period between 1750, I would say, and 1775, um, it, it's uh, it's a very important moment in Jamaican history in your book, but also um, within a, a wider Atlantic context. And so um, thinking about all of those things together, um, it you know you have a cast of characters that includes Thomas Thistlewood, but also individuals like Simon Taylor. And I was hoping that you could say a bit more about how Taylor and Thistlewood's um, management practices of the enslaved men and women who labored on their respective plantations differed. Well, well, in some ways they're very different people. Simon Taylor is is. Uh born in 1740, dies in 1813, so he's very much of the same age, the same generation of, as Thomas Jefferson, um, not as heralded, but much, much richer, dies a millionaire, which uh, really means something in the in the 18th and 19th century. And Thistlewood uh, is nowhere near that, that level of wealth or importance. Uh, and in some ways they're quite different, but in some ways they're quite similar as well. Both of them bemoan, I think, the particular short-term aspects of Jamaican life. They, 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 they are calculating abstemious for the most part, um, forward-thinking, uh, people who think in the long term rather than in the, the, the short term. So on their, on their own ways, Thistlewood is a small planter, uh, Simon, Simon Taylor is the, um, the biggest and most and the wealthiest planter in Jamaica, um, both think in the same ways of planning for the future. But what I find interesting about them is how they how they have problems with the rest of white society, white society which are full of drunkards, which are full of people out there on the short term, people mm-hmm. on the make, people who are, con- who, are, who, are, who are addicted to the short term. And those people who are addicted to the short term in many ways are much more representative of white Jamaicans uh, than people like Th- Thomas Thistlewood and Simon Taylor. But both Taylor and, 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 and Thistlewood uh, are similar insofar as having little concern for the lives of the enslaved people under them, being quite willing to entertain uh, extreme violence, both being very loyal to Britain and both wanting to, to create in Jamaica a particular type of enlightenment culture uh, which the rest of Jamaican society, white society and black society, you might say, uh, put again, did against them. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Ira Berlin because it, it, it's certainly his admonition that we should be looking at time and space uh, and perhaps particularly at, at, at time and how we look at slavery is very important because one of the things I would hope people come away from uh, reading this particular book is that slavery in the period before abolition, before the ad, before the abolition of the slave trade, uh, and in the places where demographic decline among enslaved people was axiomatic, was a very different and much worse, at least in material conditions, a much, much worse form of slavery uh, than was the case in slavery in other places, and certainly in slavery uh, in later times. On that subject, I was hoping that you could um, discuss a bit more, you know, in terms of, of the research that you have conducted not only over the past three decades, 
but specifically with regards to calculating the uh, standard of living or levels of subsistence that were experienced by Jamaicans in the late 1770s and the early 1780s. Uh, for me, one of the things that I was struck by was the exorbitant cost of living in Jamaica. I believe that you said it uh, in 1774, thereabouts, that the cost of living in um, Kingston would have been roughly 139 times more expensive than it would have been in Boston at the same time. Um, forgive me if that, that statistic is not correct, but nevertheless, the, you know, the larger point being that the not only was the cost of living extremely expensive, which to me was very, very uh, interesting to think about in the context of the free population of color, which we will talk about momentarily, and that you ex explore in greater detail in the fifth chapter of the book, but the disparities in wealth between the enslaved and the elite, going back to the example of Simon Taylor being the wealthiest planter in Jamaica during this time, um, you know, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about how you and other researchers like Jeff Williamson and Laura Panza have calculated these levels of subsistence, both in terms of um, annual income, but also with caloric consumption and other facets of everyday life that help us understand just how wretched conditions were in Jamaica during this time. Well, it's a very interesting question. One of the things that I, one of the things that I had, had done in Jamaica, and one of the articles I perhaps one of one of the ones I'm most known for was in 2001. Uh, I published an article in the Economic History Review, uh, recalculating the wealth of Jamaica based on the uh, the calculations of Richard Sheridan, uh, one of my great predecessors, uh, who was very proud to know in, in the last years of his life. Um, who had written in the 1960s about how Jamaica was much wealthier uh, than the rest of the colonies. And my, my calculations in 2001 increased that for wealth of Jamaica even more so. What I hadn't really taken into account, and, and this was something I'd talked about for a long time, is Jamaica is the wealthiest, wealthiest colony, was just how unequal it was. Uh, and this, this, this was something that, particularly when I was uh, working with Jeff Williamson, uh, and then Laura Panza in, um, in in University of Melbourne, where I used to work. Uh, Jeff had worked on 18th century North America and had come to the conclusion that North America, even with slavery, was both the wealthiest and most egalitarian society on earth uh, in, in, in regard to the standard of living. And so we started to look at this this particular particular topic, and we published an article on in the explorations of economic history uh, a couple of years ago, and to realise that, that Jamaica was very different. It was the most inegalitarian society on earth. All the profits went to the wealthiest people in society, not even to all of white people in society. An awful lot of white people were very poor but was supported in a culture which valorised whiteness uh, by extensive welfare payments, uh, but was a society where the wealth of white Jamaicans was sustained by the extreme poverty uh, of, of black people uh, in the system that I, in, in a system which I've just described, which was very much just in time, where people, just in time management, where planters concentrated on growing uh, tropical crops that they could sell in Britain without worrying about self-sufficiency, which was something which annoyed, which, which really alarmed Edward Long, which meant that they were always extremely vulnerable 
if there were any disruptions to to supply. And that, of course, happened in the American Revolution. So the figures you quote about the cost of living in Kingston compared to Boston um, comes when Jamaica's really much been starved in 1780, 1781 uh, of, of not only from British, but especially from North American provisions. And it meant the cost of everything went way up. And it meant that enslaved people, of course, bore the, bore the brunt of this uh, by being, uh, by, by starving. Uh, and I think it's no surprise in the chapter that I, I quite like, I like most in this particular book, which is the one on the, the tragedy of the Zong in 1781, which I reinterpret as a Jamaican event. Uh, what I want to show is that uh, without the slave trade coming in, without provisions coming from North America, uh, white Jamaicans faced a huge increase in living stand, in, in the cost of living, and black Jamaicans starved to death because they couldn't get the things that they needed to sustain them. And so it shows something about just the sheer brutality of this very short-term thinking among Jamaica, white Jamaicans and this extreme reliance on a particular system of this economic system which could easily be disrupted by war, etc. And one of the things which I think I'd like to examine a bit further is just how easily uh, Jamaicans accepted the reality of famine, of dearth, uh, of poverty among enslaved people. And an article I've just published in the historical in the historical journal uh, talks about that from a cultural perspective, which talks about the cult of hospitality among white Jamaicans, the extent to which they drank excessively, ate huge amounts, entertained and danced continuously, uh, and engaged in uh, in an awful lot of, of, of sexually uh, aggressive behaviour, particularly to enslaved women. Um, and that makes, that cult of hospitality seems all the worse when you have at the same time a starving and desperate enslaved population. Uh, it makes Jamaica a particularly obnoxious society, but one which is fascinating for historians to look at. Certainly. And I don't mean to give short shrift to Taki's revolt, which I think we could we could go back to in a moment. But on the subject of the Zong massacre, I, I think that I found myself most intrigued by by chapter by this chapter in the book as well. And it just seems that um, it pardon the the pun, but it was a perfect storm in this moment. Um, not only with regards to the natural disasters and the frequent, you know, experiences of, of hurricanes in 1780 and then again in 1781, but also just all of these factors that you are able to so clearly elucidate in terms of levels of productivity diminishing greatly. Um, the wealth, um, as you revert back to the wills and inventories of, of individuals who died during this period, the average estate holdings in this time went down significantly as well. But also the uh, importation of enslaved laborers, as well as the exportation of, of goods elsewhere throughout the Atlantic world, um, they both experienced significant uh, disruptions during this period. And you, you offer a, a very, I think, succinct yet evocative um, quote at the end of that chapter, you write, quote, we cannot understand the events of the Zong massacre without placing it squarely in the commercial 
and political disruptions experienced by Jamaica in the era of the American Revolution. And I was hoping that you could say a bit more about the Zong case, how it happened, um, what the motivations of those involved were, and what the ultimate outcome of this case was for um, the longevity of, of slavery and slaveholding in uh, Jamaican society in the uh, end of the 18th century. Oh, well, well, thank you. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll try and be brief. Because I, I guess I think I'll have to refer readers to actually reading to reading the whole chapter because it's it's a, it's a it's a complicated set of circumstances. But in essence, I want to say that the the Zong case which was a, a cause celeb in Britain in 1783, has always been interpreted through British lenses as, as something which had a, an impact in Britain leading to abolitionism, which I don't deny. Uh, but I think that you can only really understand how it occurred. And the Zong was a famous case in which, uh, in order to collect insurance, uh, sailors threw over, uh, threw over board 132 enslaved Africans uh, there was a famous a court case because the insurer refused to refused to pay up, uh, and it became a scandal when it became clear uh, that the that the sailors had done this, uh, and that this murder was was being treated as an insurance case. What I want to say is that there are a variety of things within this particular case that only make sense uh, if you understand that it happened in Jamaica in 1781, and that it, it happened when when Jamaica was at a very low ebb. Uh, when, as we described before, uh, people were starving and when living costs were very high, when the Atlantic slave trade had just about been destroyed, uh, when Yorktown had been lost in the American Revolution and it looked like a that Jamaica was going to be taken over by a French fleet uh, steaming towards uh, Jamaica at that particular time. Or everything seemed to be very bad and the Zong makes sense in this particular way. In particular, I, I have a... a a theory which I hope people will find convincing uh, that the Zong, the, the way, the, what, what, what happened on the Zong was connected not only to the particular nature of the insurance case, but also to the fact that a large amount of money was coming from Britain uh, to Western Jamaica uh, to be given out to planters uh, as compensation for losses that they'd had in a hurricane uh, the year before. Uh, and that those particular conditions. Uh, led to the Zong. In other words, why, what the Zong wanted to be, the, the sailors on the Zong wanted to do uh, was to sell healthy enslaved Africans uh, to planters who suddenly had uh, money that they previously didn't have uh, in, in a part of Jamaica where slave traders had never gone before. You have to read the whole chapter to get the, the gist of what I'm talking about. But what I wanted to say was that these particular local conditions not explain the Zong, but in the long term, that the Zong, I also want to say, is one of the most significant events in the American Revolution. And if we expand the idea of the American Revolution to include the Caribbean, then we, that means not only do we include such things as Tacky's Rebellion in 1760, Somerset's decision in 1772, but we include the Zong decision of 1781 and the trial in 1783 as being a real consequence of the American Revolution, which is a kickstarting of the abolitionist campaign, which made a real difference from Jamaica from a new period of Jamaican history from 1788 uh, through to the abolition of the slave trade in 1807. 
one of the, you know, in the, in the final chapters of the book, I also, I, I should say too, that um, readers who are interested in, in learning more about Tacky's revolt and the, the very uh, pointed and specific implications it had on Jamaican society across racial lines, um, I would encourage readers to, to, to not only buy your book, but to read chapter four specifically. Um, I think that the connections that you you draw from from Tacky's revolt in 1760, but then subsequently in the cases that you just alluded to, the Somerset decision of 1772, and also um, the Zong massacre of 1783, um, in a lot of ways they um, they crystallize the larger arguments that you're making in the book. I guess I could say simply, in that the um, events that unfolded in Jamaica in the era of the uh, revolu- the age of revolutions um, were deeply interconnected to um, developments throughout the, the broader Atlantic world. And that if, if we fail to recognize them as such, that we, we lose out on a considerable and an important chapter of modern history. Um, I wanted to ask uh, quickly, um, Professor Bernard, if, if you could reflect on some of the... Um, the points that you make in subsequent chapters of the book. Um, in a lot of ways, I think that this this book not only reflects decades of, of, of research and thinking on a myriad of topics and in a very particular time and place, but also about the future of, our, of the field, uh, specifically for studies of, of um, slavery and capitalism in um, the Afro-Caribbean world. And in chapter nine, um, you respond to um, a developing historiographic wave that is often referred to as the, the new histories of capitalism and the role that slavery played in the British Industrial Revolution. Um, although you caution us on page 237, you write, quote, well, we should be prepared to rethink our histories of the beginnings of industrial capitalism so that we that way we find more space for enslaved people. We need to remember that our efforts may end up with us sharing space with some uncomfortable bedfellows. I was hoping that you could say a bit more about this and you know, your, your motivations in, in writing that final chapter of the book. Well, I'll try to do so very briefly. Um, I, perhaps I would refer readers to an article I wrote with Giorgio Riello uh, in the Journal of Global History on slavery and the new history of capitalism, which outlines a lot of my a lot of my my argument and Giorgio's argument, uh, in particularly in in what an 18th century historian would think of the arguments of 19th century historians on a new history of capitalism uh, reading backwards. I, I think there are two things I would say just very quickly. Firstly, is that uh, I wanted to engage in the book with the always productive arguments of Eric Williams, who I think is is never, like all great historians, he's, it, it, he's misinterpreted as much as he is, 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 is well interpreted. Uh, and I think that Eric Williams, just very briefly, is entirely right uh, in the in the long temporal framework that he has, which says that uh, in the up until the end of the Seven Years' War and perhaps up to the American Revolution, slavery was such a vital part of Britain uh, that it was unchallenged. Uh, and then during the American Revolution, it, it started to be challenged, uh, and then and then then. Then the West Indies faded away from British importance in the 19th century. One of the things I want to engage with was this Eric Williams' idea of the American Revolution as being a critical uh, in 
in, in this, in the development of various forms of capitalism in Britain uh, and in the sudden decline of the West Indies. And I think that I would I would say two things. One is I don't think it's quite as important, slavery is not as quite as important a development of capitalism as Williams put it, uh, but the culture of, cap, of of slavery was incredibly important in what in, in, in what the British Empire thought about itself. And that the American Revolution, despite all the things that we've talked about so far, which was 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 bad for uh, planters. But one of the extraordinary things about Jamaica, the Jamaican plantation economy, was how quickly it could regroup uh, from disasters, be they natural disasters or be they uh, man-made disasters, like the American Revolution. So the long-term impact of the American Revolution was, strangely enough, much less economically. Uh, in the West Indies than it was in the American South, which has never really recovered from the American Revolution right up to this present day. But that what the American Revolution did do was to point, was to, was to show what planters were really like. And that's why things like the Zong is very important. It showed what slavery and the plantation system of Jamaica was really like. And it, it forced upon planters they're ultimately their, their most dreadful foes, which were the abolitionists. And one of the things that I think is important about the, about the new history of capitalism and is never recognised is that we need to remember that abolitionists won, slave owners lost. A lot of the readings that you now have about uh, how important slavery is both in American history and in British history, all of which I think I applaud, I agree with these sorts of things, but they overstate uh, the power that planters had. I've spent much of my career listening to planters' voices, and I'm r- rather tired of them. So certainly what I want to do in the future is to spend much more time listening to the voices of the enslaved uh, and to people who are not planters. But one of the things that I think that, that, that we've got to be weary of is taking what planters say as being gospel. So Edward Long, uh, in 1774, talks about how Jamaica uh, is absolutely essential to the economy and politics of Britain. He he says exactly the same sorts of things uh, that Eric Williams says uh, and that historians of the new history of capitalism also say in saying that slavery is so important to Britain. Now, that might mean that Edward Long is right, but it says something if you are uh, quoting people uh, who happen to be very strong, very strong uh, pro-slavers. Um, so those are some of the things I really wanted to explore, and I think that there's still a lot more to explore by historians in this particular field of how slavery and capitalism uh, operated, uh, with particular reference to the West Indies. Before we part ways, um, I, I'm wondering if you could, you know, you, you mentioned a moment ago that you've you've been listening to the voices of enslavers for almost 20 years now, if we think about it longer, certainly, but with the publication of your book about Thomas Thistlewood in 2004, um, I'm wondering if you could speak a bit now about what your future projects entail and what you hope, um, you know, the, the trajectory of your field will look, or I'm sorry, the trajectory of your career will look like in the coming years for those of us who are very anxiously awaiting the next book project? Well, I've got a variety of things that, that, that uh, interest me and in which I'm wanting to do, some of which are related to Jamaica, some of which are, are related to uh, wider topics in Atlantic history. It's been quite a productive couple of years uh, with uh, any number of books and articles coming out. I had a, a book with Sophie White 
talking, which is a collection of essays on um, enslaved voices in French and British America, which I'm quite pleased pleased about. Uh, I've just finished a book on uh, which I guess I call my lockdown project. Uh, which is where I read all the articles published in early American history between 2012 and 2020, about 400 of them, uh, and have written a book uh, talking about what I think is the state of early American history, which I guess you might say is sort of a pompous old man book. But anyway, um, it it, it tries to look at, at, at the various things that I guess I was doing in the introduction about various trends within uh, early American history. And, and none of these will be very surprising, which would be uh, how enslaved people, how slaves, Jamaica, for example, have been part of that, uh, how Indians uh, and Native American history, how the whole question of empire uh, have become very important while some of the traditional topics of social history, uh, such as the uh, position of white working class men, um, population, migration have faded in importance, and I want to talk about those things. Um, I'm also writing a book on the Caribbean uh, over, over time, uh, but I'm also interested, I guess, in a, in, in a couple of other projects. One is with Andrew O'Shaughnessy, I want to write an imperial history of the American Revolution, um, but mainly historiographical. Uh, and I want to turn away from planters to look at uh, enslaved women the voices of enslaved women in 19th century Berbice uh, using some remarkable records at, at the National Archives uh, in Kew in London, uh, which talks about what uh, enslaved women uh, thought they wanted and what they complained about. Um, and in part, that's to get away, I think, from what planters uh, want to do. Um, and finally, I think at one stage or other, I guess this would be as a few years from now, but I, I would like to draw up all the work that I've done uh, on the social history of Jamaica, working in parish registers, wills, inventories, all those sorts of things. And I would like to write a history of slavery uh, in, the, in the period before the history of, before the, 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 the ending of the slave trade to do what I think is one of the things which has been really missing uh, from slavery, that I think that people who are doing slavery in Massachusetts and New England are starting to, 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 to change that, and certainly some French scholars looking at slavery in Louisiana are doing it already, uh, which is to look at slavery in particular regions uh, over time. Uh, and that's something which I think has been lost in the last 30 years. Uh, and at some stage, rather, I think I feel I have a duty to the scholarly community uh, to write up uh, all that I know about slavery in Jamaica um, between, say, 1660 uh, and 1780. Uh, once, you get, once I get into the 1790s, it all seems to fall apart. I, I, I find that, 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 that very, very confusing, uh, although very interesting. Sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today about your fantastic new book. And for our listeners, just a reminder, um, Professor Bernard's book, Jamaica and the Age of Revolutions, can be purchased from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you, Professor Bernard. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much.